and it's a pleasure to welcome you to the latest episode of Disrupt Podcast. I'm Tom Jackson. And I'm Gabriella Mulligan. Disrupt Podcast is your one-stop shop for African tech startups news and views, bringing you all the latest from the continent's startup ecosystem, plus interviews with special guests every fortnight. This week, we're chatting to a West African startup building one of the continent's first super apps and hearing from South African AI company Data Profit in the wake of its $6 million Series A round. But first, here's all the latest news in the last two weeks. news of the last fortnight came from Kenya, where we witnessed a rare startup IPO. Music service Madundo listed its shares on the Nasdaq first north growth market in Denmark, following an oversubscribed pre-sale period that raised $6.4 million, all in a bid to solidify its leading position in the pan-African music market. Meanwhile, leading Kenyan MNO Safaricom is back with a new and bigger startup fund. The company has announced the second edition of its Spark Venture Fund, which will invest a total of $6 million in several innovative Kenyan tech startups. Another new fund of note has been launched in Nigeria, this one COVID-related, with ventures platform Acumen and Lofty Inc. teaming up to roll out a financial relief facility for Nigerian startups affected by the pandemic. And African startups continue to raise funding. Nigerian cryptocurrency exchange Yellowcard has secured a $1.5 million seed funding round, while Egyptian startups also continue to raise. The last fortnight saw rounds for on-demand laundry app Macqua, Wi-Fi startup Digify Network, and food delivery platform Ordera. In South Africa, female-focused fund Enigma Ventures backs recruitment startup JobCrystal, while TradeSafe, an online escrow platform, raised funding from Standard Bank. There are rounds for prop tech companies HouseMe and Rounder, while AI for manufacturing company DataProfit raised a $6 million Series A to help it expand internationally. More from them later. In spite of all the positive news, the negative impact of COVID on the African tech space can't be ignored. Non-profit Engineers Without Borders Canada has delayed the launch of fundraising for its $24 million Hummingbird Impact Fund as a result of the pandemic. While at a company level, Nigerian VOD company Iroko is pivoting from an African growth focus towards targeting customers in North America and Western Europe. This will be at the cost of around 150 African jobs. Other African tech startups are enjoying more success, however. South African e-health startup HealthSend, which is behind the Synapse messaging platform, has won a contract with the UK's National Health Service. While Tanzania and fintech startup Mpango has been selected to take part in NVIDIA Inception, a virtually accelerated nurturing revolutionary startups in the AI and data science arenas. Nigerian edtech startup ScholarX is assisting with the onboarding of primary and secondary school students to the Lagos Digital Skills Programme, and Ghana's Nokware was named overall winner of this year's Ecobank Fintech Challenge. Meanwhile, Francophone Africa-focused startup Gozam, which started out in the ride-hailing business, has been steadily adding product lines and recently declared itself an African super app with the rollout of a new interface. I chatted to co-founder Emeka Ajen about the startup, which is active in Benin and Togo, but has serious ambitions. You launched in 2018 on the back of raising nearly a million dollars in funding, if I'm correct. Can you tell us a bit more about your backstory and what it's like to launch a product with kind of that amount of substantial financial backing already in place? Sure. I think, um, you know, if you speak about my personal background, 
before launching Gozem, I had worked for Uber in Lagos, Nigeria. So I actually um, helped launch a budget as city number 400. was also there leading the transition at Uber from um, kind of launching cash effectively. So, you know, cash had, had, had not been very popular at Uber at the time. So Lagos was actually city number nine for Uber. So worked through that. So had a good, strong understanding of how to do ride hailing, at least as far as cars in, uh, in West Africa. So it was kind of a, you know, relevant experience to do motorcycle ride hailing in, in Togo. And I should say also my uh, business partner, Raphael, comes from a strong uh, background in Southeast Asia. And he's also had some experience launching businesses on the continent here. So when you talk about that almost uh, $1 million seed that we launched with, it tended to come from, you know, high net worth individuals who are familiar with kind of the model we were trying to replicate, Gojek and Grab. And so given Raphael's background, my background just kind of made a lot of sense. And in terms of, you know, what we're able to bring to the product, I think Raphael's expansion experience in Africa, my experience doing the actual, you know, operational piece, uh, growing, talking with drivers, growing that side of the business, uh, managing operations as far as ride hailing. It just, uh, you know, it uh, made a lot of sense and we were able to leverage, uh, you know, past experiences. You started life as a transport hailing app, uh, but now you define yourselves as a super app. Um, what does that mean or what do you see that encompassing? Yeah, no, so it's a very good question. We started as a uh, motorcycle ride-hailing app, right? So for us, that's kind of our core asset. And, you know, to your point about how you define a super app, I think, um, you know, definitions up in the year, a lot of people have, you know, different views on this. I think for us internally, it's a company that really leverages a core asset and, you know, uses that across various verticals, right? So you have a bunch of people that have done this based on uh, payments, right? Where payment is that core asset they use in different vehicles. You obviously have Grab and Gojek, which is what we're trying to replicate, that do this based on a core asset that's a transport, a fleet, effectively, right? So we've built out a strong fleet of um, champions, we call them, drivers, right? So we, through um, since 2018, we've worked with about, two, excuse me, 4,000 uh, champions, and that's our core asset, right? So right now, through the um, last few months, especially, you know, accelerated through COVID, we've also been able to layer on, uh, you know, other delivery services. So if you just think what, you know, the uh, taxi guys do, motorcycle ride hailing drivers do, they take um, something from point A to point B. That something is a person, you know, that's what you call ride hailing, but that can easily be a thing, right? So we've also added on um, groceries, Right. We've also integrated e-commerce into the app so users can download the Gozem app, open it up, order groceries and have a, a Gozem delivery guy deliver that to them. We've also integrated cooking gas, right, which is another kind of uh, interesting item in our markets. Right. So when you're in the kitchen, the gas canister goes out, you can open up your Gozem app and order another you know, on-demand gas canister. We've also uh, layered on other verticals effectively. We're now growing that ecosystem. We have the core asset built out, a strong relationship with our drivers. We're now growing that ecosystem. And what that really allows for is uh, efficiency, uh, utilization, and earnings. So it's just more efficient for the drivers, means um, less time, less downtime for them. So they have higher, you know, when they're online working with us, they're just more utilized. And that just means more earning for them. So they're happier. And once drivers are happy, it means the uh, ultimate uh, user is happier as well. And how does that super app concept um, play out in African markets? How is it well suited to those markets? 
Uh, yes. So no. So in terms of how the super app is suited to our markets, it's something that we haven't. Uh, it remains to be seen ultimately, right? So no one's done this yet. It's not like we see in uh, in in the East where you have uh, blueprints for success, right? In the East, you could point to Gojek and Grab as someone who's uh, successfully done this model. Um, but in African markets, there's no one that's actually has done it yet. So we're proud to be kind of on the, you know, on the tip of the spear, you could say. There's a few players like us that are competing to be Africa super apps. So just, you know, the number of competition doing the same uh, model kind of speaks to the ultimate potential. Right. So I think on the one hand, it just uh, it's suitable for the population for a few reasons. One is just kind of, uh, you know, the, the market structure. So for one, you have, um, especially in our markets, which is not your typical Africa, right? So when you think about Africa, a lot of uh, external investors, really what they mean when they say Africa is Nigeria, Kenya, South Africa, Ghana, right? We focus on kind of underserved markets, Togo, Benin, and Francophone, West Africa. And in those markets, you really have people that are getting on the internet for the first time, especially if you think about our drivers. So for us, what that really means is, you know, what, what makes sense for a user like that? Is it simplicity or is it complexity, right? So complexity, you would think about, especially for someone who has a phone for the first time, who's really concerned about data costs, who's really concerned about downloading apps. You know, it's not necessarily to have six, seven, eight, nine, ten apps, right? So it's if you could really build out one app that really uh, cuts across verticals, really serves uh, many needs in the same uh, in the same app, then we think that could really uh, create a lot of value for that user. And in doing so, especially as these new users are on the internet for the first time, in many cases, you could really build out a strong relationship um, and create a loyal user base that as they grow, as their income levels grow, you grow with them, right? And so that's um, one of the things that's particularly interesting to us about the model. Um, in terms of our specific approach to the super app, which is, again, driven by motorcycle ride hailing, we think it just makes a lot of sense, right? there. And I can speak to other approaches, but for us, that motorcycle ride-hitting approach uh, really leads to a lot of frequency. If you come to Nigeria, if you go to Cotonou, if you go to uh, Lomi, you go to a lot of these markets, you will see a lot of uh, motorcycles on the road. In Lomi, in Cotonou, you might see more motorcycles, tyke, motorcycle taxis than you do actually cars. So by coming into, just uh, plugging into what's already going on, we have a lot of, and it's a very affordable means of transport, we're just building a lot of frequency. I think there's other approaches. You know, some folks are following kind of a WeChat playbook, which is to build kind of around a core asset that's a, uh, a messaging uh, functionality. I think that might be challenging to do in a market where uh, WhatsApp, for example, is already the dominant player. So to ask people to switch over and to use a messaging uh, application is, uh, is going to be challenging. I mean, there's other folks, you know, doing things from a gaming perspective, and even from a payments perspective, I think um, it's just going to be, you know, to your ultimate question, the, the, it's kind of a, a lot of white space in Africa. No one knows what's a blueprint for success. We're very um, comfortable with the traction we've already gained with our model. You know, it's not, we started in 2018. We've had a lot of strong wins. We've, I think, um, proven out that the model where the playbook we're following uh, works. And, uh, and yeah, so it works certainly for, for the markets we're focused on. So now to be a bit controversial, you you said you're positioning to be one of the, the leading super apps on the continent, but now you're doing that from Togo and Benin. 
Can you speak a bit to how that works and how can you remain competitive starting from relatively nascent unknown markets? Yeah, no. So there's different approaches to um, to kind of market expansion, right? So I think um, one thing just, you know, in my experience, uh, especially not just personal experience, but talking to other entrepreneurs in uh, across various markets, um, if you, I'm personally Nigerian myself, so I spent a lot of time in Nigeria before launching Gozem in Togo. And I've talked to a lot of entrepreneurs who've launched businesses in Nigeria. So the thing is, you know, all businesses, when they start out, do a lot of experimentation. Your things are not fixed, right? So in a lot of senses, your first months, perhaps your first year, even you're still experimenting, trying to figure out things work. You're trying to understand what customers actually uh, want. You're trying to say, you know, what parts of your product make sense. So you're tinkering quite a bit in your early years and you make a lot of mistakes. In some markets, you know, mistakes are quite costly. And Nigeria is one of these markets where it's quite costly to uh, to learn. So for us, our strategy was let's go somewhere else where it's uh, it's not as costly to learn. We could build out strong processes and playbooks and really use that in a, as an expansion point. So that's the first piece. The second piece, I think, is there's this um, there's a complete, uh, in my view, perhaps it's a bit strong, but there's a complete disrespect uh, for what's going on in Francophone West Africa and just that market as a whole. Right. So people obviously look at Nigeria and what do they look at? They look at a 200 million population size. But if you peel that back and say, what's the actual consumer market in Nigeria? It's probably quite a bit, um, you know, orders of magnitude less than 200 million. So if you look at Francophone West Africa as a as a zone, as a region, right, not as individual countries, which is how we approach it. It's actually rivaling in Nigeria in terms of GDP, in terms of population as well. And if you look at, um, you know, what's going on with ECOWAS and some of the uh, policies, you have freedom of movement. You have only two uh, central banks. So it's quite an in- integrated region. So for for a lot of people, it's, you know, it's uh, Nigeria, Kenya, South Africa are quite attractive. For us, we look at that zone as its own, you know, as a strong rival to these markets. So it's a strong, it's a underserved area. You could build a base. And from that base, you could eventually... Uh, you know, go out to other markets. I think, uh, so that's how we look at it. The other part is just very simply, I think um, you look at who is who is served and who is underserved on the continent. I think certainly to some degree, um, you know, Nigerians, Kenyans, Ghanaians, South Africans are certainly well served when it comes to digital solutions. So if we say, you know, if our ultimate goal is not simply commercial, but we also want to make impact for our drivers. And I think, um, you know, in this business, you know, we work with the informal, the informal economy directly, so we certainly have an impact mindset. So you say, where can you make more of an impact? It's certainly in the parts of the continent that are less uh, less well served. And um, what would you say is the reason for the disrespect, as you call it, against Francophone Africa? And how do you go about combating that and creating an integration across the continent? Yeah, so I think it's, um, you know, it's kind of one is we haven't seen um, too many entrepreneurs coming out of Francophone Africa. So from an investor perspective and even for a, you know, potential entrepreneur who doesn't have the role models, it's hard to envision, you know, entrepreneurship as a real uh, option, opportunity in certain markets. I think in Nigeria, at least, you know, not saying that there's um, been, you know, it's not the West. But at least you have some role models who've done, you know, had different degrees of success in out of Nigeria, out of Kenya, out of South Africa and so forth. 
right? I think um, those examples, those role models are far and few between in Francophone West Africa. So that's, I think this is where, you know, what I say, uh, disrespect might be a bit strong, but just say a disregard is perhaps a, a better word. So folks don't even, you know, it's not like they're actively disrespecting Francophone West Africa. They're just not considering it at all. Right. So and I think it comes from just not being on the radar in terms of pointing to, you know, previous entrepreneurial activity. But this is changing fast. I think this is, you know, this is also one of the exciting things for having a company like Gozambi in the ecosystem. It, it creates this, uh, you know, creates awareness that you could come in. You don't have to be a bank. You don't have to be a telco. You could come in as a as a young enterprise that's leveraging the rise of the Internet and the rise of smartphones to build something that creates real value for people in your in your community. And last but not least, um, what's next for Gozem? What's the master plan? Yeah, so I think right now we're in seven cities across Benin and Togo. We offer motorcycle ride hailing. We offer tuk-tuks. We offer cars. We just recently, as mentioned, uh, upgraded our app experience to a super app experience that kind of on the homepage showcases not just our transport options, but also our grocery options, our cargo delivery option, our other e-commerce options. So that's where we are today. In terms of where we're going tomorrow, I think very we're expanding um, across a few dimensions. One is just geographically, right? So in terms of geographic expansion, we already have teams on the ground in Cameroon and Gabon. So that's probably the immediate um, next markets. We ultimately have uh, DRC as one of our markets as well. And to, uh, to your point, I think at some point, uh, uh, I don't want to give away the timetable, but at some point we'll also expand to kind of Anglophone markets like Nigeria as well. So geographic expansion is uh, next um, in terms of kind of product and the verticals we look at. So we want to continue to build out the ecosystem that's based around that core asset, which is our driver fleet. So we're integrating with a bunch of different verticals as well. And um, we are, for example, one thing we don't do yet is food delivery. So that's something that's going to be exciting when we roll that out in our markets. Uh, but also beyond that, I think um, we also have been serve, focused on serving user needs, right? So users saying, okay, because of um, COVID and kind of restrictions, you know, a essential item delivery is very interesting to me. I could, uh, you know, because of various needs, I have various needs um, that goes and can serve relative to the user. What we're starting to look at is also how do we also serve that core asset? How do we also serve those uh, drivers, right? So this is probably the next um, big milestone for Gozem as well as we think about um, offering uh, different services that are focused on the drivers, whether that's um, payment, whether that's lending, uh, and so forth. So we want to also build our, an ecosystem, but not want to, we will very shortly start to build the ecosystem around drivers as well. So that's kind of what's, uh, the immediate next steps for Gozem, building out uh, the expansion roadmap and also the product roadmap for users and also drivers uh, champions as well. All right. Thanks so much. That's all been so interesting. Thank you for taking the time. Thank you. there with a heads up that we should all be paying more attention to West Africa, as it's the perfect breeding ground for ambitious startups looking to create highly scalable solutions with both commercial and impact potential. I, for one, am intrigued by the super app approach, and it'll be exciting to see how Gozen manages to scale this model across the continent. Speaking of startups with expansion plans, Tom caught up with Franz Kronje of South African startup Data Profit, which raised a big round in the last couple of weeks. I did. 
DataProfit uses AI to proactively prescribe changes to a manufacturing plant's control plans to continuously optimize production without the expert human analysis typically required. Sounds boring, but this has a major impact on the top and bottom lines for a number of major manufacturing clients, and the company is now preparing to go global. The startup Series A round will be used to help it set up commercial operations in other markets. All right, Franz, tell me about the funding round and how it came about. Cool, thank you. Um, so for us, the funding round was something we started actually about 12 months back. Uh, we started on the road and it's it's something that we felt important for the company in order to realize some of our international growth ambitions, specifically to develop ourselves abroad. But uh, 12 months back, we started approaching both kind of local as well as the international market. It's been quite a long road, which has been interrupted by COVID. Absolutely, we, we had that experience. Um, and we saw kind of we were on the front lines a little bit as uh, some of the capital just uh, froze in the sense of just funds looking after the internal companies uh, while they worked out what the impact of COVID would be. But quite happy to be on the far side of that uh, style. Um, very, very happy to announce that we've, we have now raised the $6 million amount uh, from a combination of investors, it being led by NAF Capital, who've been fantastically supportive through the round, and also joined by two strategic investors who are incredibly valuable when it comes to the context of our market, the manufacturing space. Fantastic. Um, you say it's primarily for international expansion. I mean, what are your what are your target geographies, and how is that how is that expansion plan being put into place? I mean, so the work we do is is focused in the implementation of AI into the manufacturing plants of the world. And as you can imagine, a lot of manufacturing and um, you know the, the major hubs of manufacturing um, is abroad. And so we're targeting the EU as well as the US as our uh, first kind of new geographies of expansion. We already do have a couple customers in that space, but what is quite important um, when it comes to our work is kind of having this close relationship and this local uh, commercial um, and uh, technical support in those geographies. And so this this expansion allows us to build out offices in, in the EU, the US, uh, to support customers and partners in that space. Um, as well as to strengthen some of the technical capability in, in South Africa, uh, the core product development team. Yeah. Um, when you're approaching potential customers in places such as the European Union and the, U- and the US, are there any challenges you face as a, a South African or an African uh, startup pitching to these guys? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's when you when you look at the manufacturing space, it is kind of an inward focus, quite conservative market. Um, they very much want to be quite comfortable that if if they're working with you, kind of they they're you know they want to have this relationship, uh, they want to have these personal relationships, um, and it's something that we necessarily need to support. Right? And so coming out of South Africa is something that it is difficult for those markets to relate to, um, and subsequently this is this is why it's quite important for us to build these commercial relationships there. But they're evidently being persuaded by to your technology. I mean, what's so innovative about the tech you're using, and how impactful is it on the, on manufacturing customers? So the technology that we sell is it's an AI solution into the manufacturing space. I mean, coming from a South African background, you know, we're we're all quite familiar with the ideas behind Industry 4.0 or um, 4IR. And kind of really the genesis of that term is within the manufacturing context and AI is one of those core pillars to it. 
The work that we do centers on uh, reducing scrap and defects, predominantly in heavy industry, so uh, mineral processing, uh, foundries, automotive plants. Uh, we talk about reducing defects in those environments by up to 40%. Um, and we also talk about improving recovery out of uh, your of your uh, target material out of the ore when it comes to mineral processing. And kind of the, the key component of our technology and the value that we're creating um, is optimizing the control parameters behind a manufacturing plant. And to kind of correctly, uh, but per perhaps provide a simpler explanation behind that, um, we talk about improving the recipe that the manufacturing plant is following um, in order to improve its production. What kind of impact is that having on the bottom lines of these clients? So depending on the nature of the industry, it might be the top line in terms of improving ore recovery um, or the target uh, material recovery out of the ore, rather, or it's reducing defects. And it obviously depends on the size of the institute, but we've had one of our customers, um, a grey iron foundry, and grey iron foundries typically run at about a 4 to 5% defect rate, right, which they'll be catching at the end of their line. Uh, but it's obviously lost time and energy and, and material. Um, us, we, what we managed to do is over the long term, we've reduced that defect rate by 40%, and we've had periods where we've reduced the defect rate by 100%, so we've taken them down to 0% defects. Um, and as a bottom line impact, that, that typically kind of year to year has about $1 to $3 million impact um, on their profit. So it's, it's an improvement of their profit to that amount. And you're being used by some fairly high-level clients. Yes. So, so we've had some great engagements with um, some of the German auto, automotive OEMs. Um, we do, we've done work at their various plants. We've had great impact upon uh, some of their um, assembly lines, especially when it comes to robotic welds. Um, they're kind of actually upon, upon uh, some of their lines. We've reduced what's termed a quality stop. It's when... A vehicle is found to find uh, they find a defect upon it and they have to repair that before obviously uh, finishing the vehicle. There we've reduced those by fifty to seventy percent with those, uh, and that's work done upon you can imagine kind of a robotic um, arm with a robotic weld head and just optimizing the recipes behind each of those on a continuous basis. We're able to reduce defects by fifty to seventy percent. Um, and as you start to focus more and more on international markets, I mean, to what extent will data profit remain in, in a South African or an African um, company? I mean, you're still employing local talent. It's something I'm quite proud of from a team perspective. Um, it's a, you know, a hypothesis, kind of, I, I believe it quite strongly. I think the team and the talent that we have here in South Africa is uh, very competitive internationally. Um, and I think we can continue to prove that. So the, the, the um, general strategy that, that we're approaching is to keep and maintain our main engineering hub in South Africa. Um, and then as we grow internationally, um, really it's the commercial teams that we're deploying. And that's, that's everything with regards to sales as well as uh, the technical support in country. But to have the main kind of beating heart of uh, product development engineering rest within South Africa and have that uh, for the foreseeable future.
So your immediate plans include European Union, United States expansion, and what's sort of the next step beyond that for data profit? I mean, where, where do you see ourselves in three or four years' time? Is there are we are we looking at more, more emerging markets? Is there a Series B fund funding round somewhere in the in the pipeline? I mean, what's the what's the, the, the longer term goal? The longer term goal is as as we establish ourselves well within the US and the EU markets. Um, it's obviously the Asian markets, which are very important when it comes to manufacturing. China representing a third of all manufacturing GDP in the world, right? Um, and so it's entering into those environments. Um, and that's, that's, that's something that's kind of key on our three to five year horizon. Uh, we're obviously kind of working towards a state where um, our current kind of plan and trajectory puts us in a place that we should be able to do that with the, this, this uh, series. My name is Apollo Eric, the CEO of BitLeaper. BitLeaper is a peer-to-peer borderless remittance network. We are using Bitcoin and ETH as a conduit to move value across nation-state borders. Our value proposition is offering instant international settlement, and we are reducing the cost of sending money internationally by 70%. Since we launched the beta version of the application in April 2020, we have over 5,000 users transacting over $100,000 every day. We are asking for $5 million in exchange for 10% equity in the company. We want to use this money to hire more back-end engineers and developers to be able to scale and secure our technologies. Essentially, what we've done with M-Pesa is what we want to do with cheaper cash, MasterCard, Visa, um, Skrill, and all those other mobile money uh, gateways. We are asking you to join us in this journey of building cool, simple-to-use technology that brings the largely underground crypto economics to the mainstream. That's all for this episode of Disrupt Podcast. As ever, we hope you enjoyed it. And please remember to let all your friends and colleagues know that they can listen to the podcast on any of their favorite podcasting platforms. After 10 episodes, that's the end of season one, and we will now be taking a month's break. But be sure to stay tuned for when we return at the start of October with the next episode. In the meantime, we'll be throwing ourselves into prepping Africa Tech Summit Connects, which takes place on October 20th to 22nd, the first edition of Africa Tech Summit taking place fully digitally. We promise to have a stellar speaker lineup for you, as well as startup pitches and opportunities galore. Head over to africatechsummit.com to get your tickets. Bye for now. Bye.